Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Thinking on the Air. I know last week was very chill, but in lieu of recent events, I am going to discuss something a little bit different than last week. I still don't want to discuss violence, but I want to bring awareness to the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests across America. And of course, the violence perpetrated through police brutality and against black Americans. But I choose not to discuss that violence. So instead, I will be discussing forms of resistance throughout history presented to us through the black community in America, as well as other places. I will do this as a historian, and I hope it brings you hope in this rough time. I hope it brings solidarity, and um, I hope it keeps you thinking. So let's get started. Now, when we think of civil rights in America, um, what we think about is the civil rights movement, you know, first and foremost. Martin Luther King and his March March on Washington. And that's where a lot of people think it started. But there's a long, long history of protests in America. I mean, protests began in America with America, you know, against Britain. And black Americans have fought in every American war from the Revolutionary War to our modern wars today. Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. was inspired um, in his way of protest a lot by Gandhi. Gandhi uh, protested British colonialism in India. He was a Hindu and he used lots of nonviolent forms of protest, um, a lot relating to his religion. This includes fasting against violence in his community, um, against, um, you know, white supremacy, essentially towards um, the Indians and Muslims and Hindus in India and of course for Indian independence Um, and also Indian rights Indian rights most famously the salt march um, in which there was a a prohibition essentially for Indians Um, they couldn't sell salt which is you know a pillar of their economy and necessary for food (laughs) So they couldn't harvest salt from the seas and sell it, which was, you know, a big part of their economy. Very important. A lot of, a way to make a living for a lot of people. So he walked miles and miles with a large crowd um, in order to protest 
you know, this prohibition on salt for the Indian people. And he did it because of the wrong the British colonialists had done to India. Paraphrasing a quote there. And he didn't always win his fights. You know, he fasted. He he marched. He was a political diplomat and leader, especially between the Indian Hindus and the Indian Muslims um, and the British government as well. But he did get a lot of concessions. Um, He got concessions uh, for salt, so the Indians could harvest salt and sell it. Um, He eventually created the organization that brought Indian independence after his death. And that's still in place today in India. Um, And one thing he did also other than, you know, these big fancy protests. He, he did small protests too. And what I think is really important about that is it's a way of protesting in your daily life. Like you don't have to go out and march if you don't feel safe and you don't have to, you know, bring picket signs screaming. You don't have to starve yourself if you don't want to like him. He, instead of wearing British made clothes brought from Britain, he would sew his own clothes so he would harvest his own linen and cloth and sew them rather than buy british made clothes to uh, support his economy and support his community around him and he inspired a lot of other people to do this so this creates a, a net of communal support in protest against the british government because what do governments try to do to minorities is give them the support they supposedly need instead of allowing their communities to grow naturally and create ties, create bindings that um, lead to blooming economic prosperity. We can see that in America as well. Um, How they flooded black communities with drugs and over-arrest African-Americans. Same sort of thing was happening back there in India. So one thing he did was he wouldn't support that economy. And I'm going to get into how Nati- or how African Americans have done that in America as well. But what I really want to point out there <clears throat> is that you can protest in small ways too. And that's what Gandhi, you know, taught Martin Luther King. He taught peaceful protest and we can see that in the the bus protests, the, how black Americans would walk to work instead of take the bus because they weren't allowed to sit at the front of the bus. Yeah, marches to Washington, um, sit-ins, where they would sit in basically white-owned diners and they would sit at the counter. People would throw food at them, not to mention the police brutality they saw back then in the 1950s and 60s with the giant hoses and dogs sick on them, especially in, in Alabama. Um, truly horrifying. And maybe now we don't get like fire hoses and dogs sicked on us, but um, instead black men get shot, black women get shot. They get choked to death on the street. I'm sorry if I'm getting frustrated, <laughs> um, but it, And even now, protesters get tear gas and rubber bullets. They're still bullets. 
So if you don't feel safe going out to protest, here are some other ways you can protest too. That's what I'm trying to teach y'all today. And I hope you at least think about it. All right. So returning back to modern times in America, um, we can look to black artists today as a source of protest in their everyday lives. Black music artists, um, black business owners even, their success proves that they are part of our country, that they are valid and they do not deserve what they are getting. If we and especially music artists, if we look to Beyonce's formation and Janelle Monet, a lot of her music, um, Queen, Q-U-E-E-N, you know, kind of acronym spelled. Anyway, the, those songs are specifically anti-state. And if you look to Beyonce's formation when she performs it, she's dressed like the Black Panthers. So music can be used as a form of protest and it also can be used as a form of um, cultural preservation for African-Americans, especially if we look to the early era of hip hop, 80s, 90s, very anti-state, anti-interventionist, very early black power even. And those are just some examples that I'd like to point out as well. So go and listen to some black music and read some or take in some black art. Um, authors, of course, very important. African authors and African-American authors, black Muslim American authors, um, again, a source of cultural preservation and a source of an oppressed voice. I I was lucky enough to be assigned to read African writers and African American writers, and I pulled some quotes that um, they have said. And so the first African author I ever read was called Chinua Achebe, and he wrote Things Fall Apart, and it is a response to Joseph Conrad's a Heart of Darkness, which is debatably, <laughs> for some fucking reason, uh, racist. And it's called The Heart of Darkness because Africa is the dark continent. It is supposedly without history, without education, without language, even. So Chino Wajabe wrote this in response. And he, he is from an Igbo nation. In Africa and his book is about the colonization of his nation and um, the um, race for Africa and he says one of the truest tests of integrity is its blunt refusal to be compromised and that's what protest essentially is the refusal to be compromised so again, we don't have to go out there and march and sing and scream. And we don't have to hurt ourselves, hurt each other to get our voices heard. We just have to 
refuse to be compromised. Thank you, Chinua Achebe, for that quote. Of course, I also want to point out other authors such as Maya Angelou, Susan Laurie Parks, which you might not have heard of, but um, I read her book, um, The Venus, and it, it documents one of the first Africans extracted from Africa and paraded around Europe like a circus animal. And it's a heartbreaking story, but it really, and it's a play actually, and it really, it tears you apart, but it's so intellectual. It's so, it's so gripping. It's so real that it invites you into a whole nother world, especially for me, a white person who I don't understand that voice. So I highly recommend Susan Laurie Parks, Susan with a Z instead of a second S. Um, Laurie Parks is hyphenated. <laughs> uh, the Venus, the Venus Hot and Tot, a play. But it's in book form, you can find it. Also, of course, Toni Morrison, who I read Song of Solomon from. And I have another quote from her. If you're going to hold someone down, you're going to have to hold on by the other end of the chain. You are confined by your own repression. One thing Morrison tends to write about is internalized racism. I remember the idea of white passing being in her book. And we've, we've all internalized it, our own repression. So, like Achebwe said, let's not be compromised. And like Morrison said, let's not hold on to our own end of the chain. Just refusing is enough. There's some wide swears from black authors. Just thought they might be helpful for you right now. There is one other person we tend to think about when we think of um, civil rights protests in America, and he tends to be thought about second, the later half. And of course, speaking of Malcolm X. Now, Malcolm X was born and raised in Detroit, and he quickly became associated with NOI, the Nation of Islam, in Detroit, where he was basically a, an apprentice of Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Detroit section of NOI at the time. And the foundation of NOI is resistance of the, say, the state and being self-dependent. It was founded in the 1930s with this goal in mind. Also, the X name does not, like Malcolm X did not come up with it himself. It is a practice done by the NOI, men and women of the NOI, to refuse their, their slave names and replace that with X. Um, another thing that uh, the NOI would support was, I talked about a communal net when we were talking about Gandhi. Um, 
a net of support, um, uh, supporting Black-owned businesses and supporting each other, whether that be economically or otherwise. And one way this was done was militarization. I hate to say it, but NOI had um, something called the Fruits of Islam, still has it, and it was um, militarized. Think of it as a a Muslim Black Panthers, almost. Not as modernized or evocative, but it's the same idea. Um, They're set in place to defend their communities because the state will not protect them. The state only hurts them. That's the idea. And so you can see the the connections from the fruits of Islam and the NOI through Malcolm X towards the Black Panthers in the 60s who carried guns around. Of course you can do that. That's definitely one way to protest. But I'm not one to carry a gun. A lot of people won't either. So I want to point you towards another way that black Muslim Americans are protesting the state. And this might sound bizarre at first. I need you to just ride this wave with me because it's fascinating. So in her book, Muslim Cool, Sudad Abdul Kabir writes about how Muslim Americans, black Muslim American women and men are using white culture or black African-American culture to refuse and antagonize the state. I know what you're saying to me. You're like, AJ, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. Well, I opened this book. And the first chapter talks about how Muslim women tend to wear their hijabs, um, hijabis, and... Of course, there's many different ways um, that they do it, but one way we can see a lot in America is this kind of turban-like way of wearing it, where they don't cover their ears, and they don't cover the base of their neck, and they kind of wrap it in a bun. I, I have no technical terminology. I'm just describing what it looks like. Um, and uh, this is this way of wearing a headdress originated in Africa. Who knows why? Maybe it was because of Muslim, you know, practice. It might have been because of the heat. But it was a, a, a practice of wrapping a headscarf that got carried to America by black women. Also, of course, to protect their hair and things, um, to keep it preserved. So it got carried to America with slavery and women still wore their hair like that, wore the headscarf like that, and it was seen as an African thing then, you know, a black thing, a thing that Muslims wouldn't do. But here's the thing. Islam has been in Africa since the 11th century, if not the 8th century, depending on the country. And so, black African-American women Black African-American Muslim women are wrapping their hijabs in the same sort of style. And in the book, Kabir calls this a hood job, a hood, a hood job. 
Wow. Isn't that fascinating? Why would they do that? Why are they wearing an African way and not a Muslim way? See this cultural contention here. Well, they're African Americans. They're Muslim African Americans. This is a style that was brought from Africa, used, worn by African women, especially in iconography of, you know, the early hip hop eras, <laughs> as I said. And they wear it in an African way, some might say, in solidarity, in, in protest, in, to scream black power without saying a word. There's a lot of other reasons women might wear it this way, but that's definitely one of them. Now that's women. Let's talk about some men, shan't we? Now men, this is where it gets really interesting. Muslim African-American men, what do they wear? What do you think they wear? Well, they wear Muslim clothes, don't they? All of them do. Of course, all of them do. Yes. No. <laughs> um, what Kabir talks about in her book about, here at the end, in her book, Muslim Cool, forgot to say the name, is how men are doing the same thing, this reappropriation of, of, you know, other cultures than their own. Not to hegemonize or blend in with white culture, with American culture, but to stand in solidarity with their African roots, with their um, American roots, with their Muslim roots, all of them. Um, again, this might sound crazy, but look it up. It's real. <laughs> it's it's fascinating. So, the men, as referred to in the book, are called Muslim dandies. And you're probably thinking, well, that makes no sense. But here's what I'm seeing when I look up Muslim dandies. I see a black African man, handsome. He's wearing a, a, a tan fedora, a tan suit jacket, a darker tan uh, vest, a nice high collar, and a pink bow tie. Hold on to your hats. A Yemeni scarf over all this. This is just the top hat. He's wearing like dark tan khaki pants and dark tan khaki shoes. He's carrying a bright orange cane. He's wearing a silver ring and glasses. And you're like, this, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> so why are men doing this? Why are they dressing so, so nice, so oddly, so colorfully? Why are these Muslim men doing this? It's because, well, when we think man in a three-piece suit and a bow tie, we think old-fashioned, maybe. We think rich. We think handsome. I mean, every woman wants to marry a rich man, right? Right? But he he has these bright pops of color and he's wearing a Yemeni scarf. 
and it's patterned, matches his colors. He's very coordinated. Um, and why is he trying to look white, you might say? Uh, he's not trying to look white. He has taken a little bit of white culture, yes. The three-piece suit, you might say. The hat, the shoes, the bow tie, the rings, you know. He's taken a little bit, yes. And he's made it his own. He's had he has added the scarf, he's added the colors. And you're like, what's the point? Well, why would these men be doing this? I said they were attractive, weren't they? He's attractive. Here's what my professor said about this photo. She said, sex, not guns, is the best way to dismantle a society. Thank you, Amanda Ferrace. <laughs> the black Muslim dandies are trying to reappropriate white culture, the, the three-piece suit, white fashion, changing it, making it their own, that they... they fit in without being attacked, right? That's that's a big worry. They look rich. So white women will be attracted to them. They will dismantle the society <laughs> through sex. That's what my professor said. By attracting white women, they can, you know, create, hegemonize culture in a non-aggressive, non-violent way. They can... Uh, transculturate, culturate. Ugh, I don't know if it's a noun. <laughs> I know it's a, a verb, but it's the sharing of cultures without reappropriating it or, or changing it or, you know, stealing it. That's a big worry here, right? No. Some people may say they're bettering themselves. I say they're dismantling the white patriarchy. <laughs> the white supremacy. They're putting black men on top. They're putting black women on top. They're celebrating their culture in a new, interesting, subversive way. That's why you're like, this is make no sense. You're not supposed to get it. It's for them. I don't know. Why don't you just fuck them and then everything will change? Let's change the world through sex like the hippies did. Not through violence. I don't know, just a little tidbit. A little little lesson. From the Muslim dandies, from black Muslim win women, and from Kabir's book, Muslim Cool. I hope you think about it. know what you're thinking. AJ, sex is not going to save us right now. It would be awesome if it would. Well, maybe our problems won't get fixed. Maybe their problems won't get fixed today or tomorrow. What my goal here is so talk about forms of resistance, ways of protest that already exist in our world today. 
And if everyone were to do it, maybe things would change. And sex might save us. Words might save us. Art could save us. Maybe I'm just over-sentimental and a romantic, but... We don't always need violence for change. I mean, Martin Luther didn't get civil rights bill passed because he was, you know, out, you know, looting and raiding. He never did anything like that. I know there are peaceful protests out there right now, and I hope and pray that they stay that way. But if you're worried, if you're scared, even if you're angry, and your loved ones aren't letting you go out there and protest because they're worried about you, or you're too young, or you're just personally afraid. I understand that. And I wanted to provide you with some small ways of protest that have been perpetrated by black voices throughout America. And that can continue to be. I wanted to point out ways that they're doing it that you might not know about. I wanted to educate you about those things. And you're right, maybe sex won't save us. I think a combination of all of these things I've talked about today and peaceful protest will get us there. Hopefully things will change. I hope this information tonight gives you hope. <laughs> I hope it keeps you thinking. This is AJ signing off. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Black Lives Matter. <laughs>